Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Queer Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Luis Cornejo, a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified sex therapist in the state of California. I'm also the co-owner of a fully virtual practice, Psychosocial Therapy. And today we have a very special guest who's going to be talking about the book Unsafe Words. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves and just give us a little bit more info about who they are and their work. Thank you so much, Luis. My name is Trevor Hoppe. I am an associate professor of sociology at UNC Greensboro and co-editor with Chantel Gabrielle Bugs Bugs of the new book, Unsafe Words, Queer and Consent in the Me Too Era. And uh, I write about sexuality, uh, gay men's health, a little bit about crime and law sort of stuff in sociology generally. Uh, but this book is about sex, capital S, sex, and consent, and harm, and pleasure, and ethics, and all that fun, good stuff. So I'm excited to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and for being here to talk about the book, uh, and also just to share your knowledge with us. Let, let's start off with the book. Tell me, how did you get involved? Uh, what does this book mean to you? Uh, and also, uh, I know you collaborated with Chantel, so tell us a little bit about that process. Definitely. So, you know, I have been following the Me Too kind of movement very closely because it's been a kind of reckoning around sexual ethics. And and there's been this little interesting conversation about sex in a very public forum that doesn't always happen. So I've been grateful to see that kind of play out. But of course, I've also noticed that it's been very heterosexual focused. Um, Mm. And, you know, it's mostly been about these accusations of powerful men like Harvey Weinstein, who abused, assaulted, raped, Um, vulnerable or less powerful women, often subject uh, women who were subordinate to him in some way or or, uh, of these various men, uh, Mm -hmm. often in business. Um, And it just, you know, it is, of course, important to deal with those situations, respond to them and hold people accountable when necessary. Um, But it doesn't really help us in our day to day lives make sense of our own sex lives. Like what does consent look like? How do we do it differently as queer people? So I really felt like there was a need to have a more nitty gritty, honest, frank conversation about Mm -hmm. sex that was focused on queer lives. And um, Rutgers was doing the Rutgers University Press who put out the the book um, is doing a new series called Q plus public. And it's it's focused on these very sort of big public issues, kind of making academic books, but facing a more broad public audience in a queer way. And so it, they came to me to see, to talk about book ideas and, and I thought this would be a really good one. So I was excited to be a part of it. And then Chantel is someone I'd known for a long time in the field. She's a badass uh, sociologist of sex who works out of Florida and at Florida State. And uh, I just thought I had never collaborated with her before and I was really excited about the possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I reached out to her and she was just enthusiastic, just as enthusiastic as I was about the project. So we, we kind of cooked this baby together and, and now it's out and, mm. uh, and I'm, we're, we're both really proud of it. It's a really, it's a really, um, it's really frank. I guess that's the best way to put it. It's just really mm-hmm. honest and, and, uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to say brave cause that's a little too on the nose, but for some of our authors i think it is really uh they they make themselves quite vulnerable in the way they talk about their own sex lives yeah 
Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned the Me Too movement, right? And those conversations and how queer voices have not been highlighted or even centered uh, when we talk about sex and sexuality. Uh, and how important is it for you, uh, you know, when it comes to the book and, and the intention for people to be aware uh, of queer voices in uh, in this, uh, you know, this conversation, uh, especially when it comes to sex and how it does differ. I mean, at least in my work as a sex therapist, working primarily with queer folks, sex is very you know, I mean, it's it's different, right? I mean, there's so many uh, historical, but also social attributes that uh, are not uh, the same as heterosexual uh, ideas around sex or even uh, consent. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would hear some of these conversations crop out of me too um, about uh, enthusiastic consent, which I kind of I, I understand mm -hmm. the logic. It's this idea that you sort of ask explicit verbal permission before doing each and everything that you do mm -hmm. in bed with a partner. And I, I get that like there's a sort of teaching utility to that, but some people took it even further than that to mm -hmm. say that it's like a political line where if you don't do that, then it's rape. And mm -hmm. in my own life, mm -hmm. I just thought, well, then I have been raped thousands of times and that's, that is such a disservice to us because it, it makes it impossible to distinguish between actual trauma and real harm, violence, trauma. Um, so just on that level, I think queer or not, there needed to be an intervention to say, hold up, like consent might need to look like this for some people. Like if that is an important thing for you and you tell your partners that, then that is of course valid, but not everybody needs that kind of, you know, um, kind of structure so and queer people especially like in, you know i've been to bathhouses and back rooms at bars and and mm -hmm. talking is explicitly like you know not necessarily prohibited of course but it's it's not usually part of how consent is done um it might be a, a nod mm -hmm. a wink um a light grab mm -hmm. um it, it's it's just a sort of different process in those spaces in those sexual spaces um, so I just thought we need to be more honest that sex is more diverse and we need different mm -hmm. tools depending on the context, you know, that people are operating in. Absolutely. And I think that's what we miss out on, right, when we don't have these conversations or centered voices, especially from the queer community, because I, I know personally that historically uh, queer folks had to find creative ways to engage and connect physically with other folks uh, because it wasn't always safe out in the world. Right. And and, uh, and so, I mean, e even like you were describing, right, a wink, a nod, a look. Right. I've had similar experiences as well, where there isn't a lot of verbal <laughs> conversation, but it's more of, of a of a nonverbal right approach to, to interactions. Um, and so I think that, that you're absolutely right. It, it could get, definitely get lost in translation when we're so hyper-focused on a very heteronormative aspect and uh, perspective of consent. Now, you also, uh, well, in the book, it also mentions uh, sex workers and how important their voices are within this conversation as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and, and uh, the role that sex workers uh, play in consent and teaching uh, folks about in just in general, right? All other versions of consent. Yeah, I mean, I think as as Angela Jones put it in the first chapter, like sex workers are the leading experts on consent. Like that is kind of what they do for a living is navigate those waters. 
So if we're going to be talking about consent, I think it's really critical that we talk to sex workers because they just have the professional expertise in the area. Um, and so we have we have several chapters from people who who've engaged in sex work at some level, and then we have one, um, two from people who have who have who talk explicitly about their own lives as sex workers, um, and. You know, I thought that was really important, even though um, both of them were engaged with clients who were opposite sex, so they wouldn't fit under the queer umbrella mm -hmm. for some people. To me, they are under the queer umbrella just because they're sexual outlaws in some way. They exist outside the sort of heteronormative, um, you know, marriage, family, kids kind of space. Um, and they also, like like Angela says in her chapter, are, are experts on this subject, so they they, they should lead the way. And that's why, in part, why Angela's chapter is the first in the book, is to kind of set that tone that, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. we value tremendously their insight and uh, think it's really critical that they are at the table when these conversations happen. Great. No, thank you for sharing that. And I think you're absolutely right. And it, it is very important to center all of these different voices, whether it is sex workers or queer folks. Uh, I know for me, at least in my training as a sex therapist, it was usually uh, not present, right? A lot of the research, a lot of the uh, trainings, a lot of the assignments that I had to complete were often very much rooted in heteronormativity and uh, cis hat white couples, uh, you know, and so we didn't really have a lot of uh, information to go off when it came to queer sex, queer physical interactions, consent, uh, or even uh, sex work, uh, we did have a, a guest speaker who who uh, did um, who was a sex worker, and so that was kind of almost a bit of the limit. But there was really no deeper dialogue, and so I I, I think that. Uh, it, it definitely is very important. And I, I like how you mentioned it was intentional, right, to kind of set the tone and having this as the first opening uh, to introduce folks, right, to the idea of consent and, and uh, unsafe words, and especially in the Me Too era. Uh, now, personally for you, I, I know you've also written other books or, or you've worked on other books. I think there was one, uh, The War on Sex. Uh, how does that connect to, I mean, unsafe words and, and your knowledge, I mean, at least from your past work? Definitely. So The War on Sex is um, another book I love and spent a lot of time and energy putting together. And that's kind of the criminal law side of this debate. It's like what happens when, when all we mm. do is, is punish like we're just obsessed with punishing sex and uh, we have built this whole mm -hmm. insane legal apparatus for regulating, controlling, punishing sex um, that, that doesn't seem to have done any good. In fact, sexual violence rates have not gone down mm -hmm. as a result of this systematic criminalization effort. And the registry, the sex offender registry is the most sort of visible, you know, uh, iceberg of that war. Mm -hmm. um, but there are many sort of components of it. And and of course, we want to keep people safe and healthy, healthy and happy. Uh, but I think we've learned with the war on drugs and other failed, you know, attempts to use the criminal law that just like we can't punish our way to freedom. <laughs> you know, like it's not going to be the thing that's going to set us free. <laughs> I, it's so like obvious, right, when you say it that way. But yeah. it's funny how Americans just are obsessed with punishment. Um, and so I wanted to write a book. Unsafe Words comes is sort of the sociocultural side of that debate. It's not centered in the criminal law or the law at all, really. It's more sort of that ethical space of like, 
how do we treat each other well? Mm. And if things do go wrong, the second half of the book explores what do we do about it? Like, how as a queer community can we respond to sexual mm -hmm. harm? Um, when we live in a world where the first impulse for most people is to pick up the phone and call the police. And we have several authors mm -hmm. who talk about as people of color, as, as a, you know, Dominique Morgan talks about as, a, as being a trans woman of color, uh, a black woman in America, like the police are not going to be our friends many of the time. They are, in fact, people mm -hmm. who have perpetrated violence mm -hmm. against our communities. Um, so mm -hmm. so I think that that's kind of, Unsafe Words is the kind of cultural uh, twin to what the war on sex yeah. is. They Similar ideas, but just mm -hmm. one is about the law and one is more sort of about se sexual ethics. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's great because it, it also sounds like they I mean, they go hand in hand. Right. Because when we talk about sex and society, I mean, sex is everywhere. Right. We see it in ads and movies and we hear it in music. And yet we're, it's so taboo still. Right. We don't actually talk about it. We just like in, enjoy having it permeate almost every facet of our lives. But there's really no deeper dialogue. And what you were sharing about, uh, you know, even how sex is punishable. I mean, it, that that has historically, I think, been the case. Right. Where especially for queer folks. Uh, and, and I mean, it affects heterosexual folks as well. Right. Cisgender folks as well, because they, it, it creates this this whole uh, almost illusion of what good sex is versus bad sex and, and pleasure and all of these things. And, and like you mentioned, leading to the idea of punishment, right? I mean, we still have countries where it is illegal for people to engage in gay sex, right? <laughs> I mean, it's punishable by, by death or, or other uh, things. I mean, here in the U.S., there were definitely laws against it for a long time. And, um, you know, these, these, the ways that we were engaging uh, insects and the types of sex that we were allowed to have, mostly uh, very much rooted in biblical <laughs> terms, right around sex. So yeah, I mean, when I when I when I came out as a gay man in North Carolina in the '90s, it was still a felony to have gay sex. Mm. Um, and that was not that long ago. I mean, that's in my lived memory. So I just grew up mm -hmm. thinking it was a bad thing. It was a crime. Um, and there's still, like, speaking of the registry earlier, there's still several states where a sodomy conviction for the 1970s could, you could still be on the sex offender registry for consensual gay sex, even though that's not prosecutable anymore in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we still live with echoes of that past, even as we're sort of struggling to escape it. Although all bets are off in this day and age, because I think mm -hmm. uh, we are just, uh, there are several states that are ready to just go back to criminalizing um, all sorts of things they don't like, from drag to trans people. Mm -hmm. um, and gay sex is not far off that mark. I mean, I, I'm mm -hmm. sorry, it's just not far to imagine them putting sodomy back on the table as mm -hmm. a, a crime in some of these states. Um, it's, it's, we've, I feel as though we're sliding backwards in this horrifying mm -hmm. way. Absolutely. I mean, we are definitely are seeing a lot of pushback when it comes to the queer movement in this country, right? Whether it, like you mentioned, it is against uh, drag queens or even trans folks uh, who are often the pioneers, right? When it comes to challenging and really uh, pushing away from the binary narrative and uh, moving into more of a possibility, right? Of us existing as full human beings without these types of social constructs. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I all of this is very ideological, right? I mean, oftentimes it is pushed as a narrative, right, of it being either uh, 
it's something that causes harm, right? We're, we're, we're affecting the children or, uh, you know, it's not safe or it's too sexual or uh, whatever, right? It's often pushed in, in a very uh, uh, almost like danger kind of like a, a tone. Um, and so I, I think it, it, these are important conversations and we are very, very far off from <laughs> actually having them. Um, and so I think that's why your book is so important because like you mentioned, even the Me Too movement, right? It, it, we're still so confused and I mean there's so much that goes into the Me Too movement where there's been so much controversy and pushback as well uh, even with cishet folks so I mean it's very complex and I think uh, you know many people are not ready for this and, and they definitely see sex and consent and a lot of these things at a very surface level uh, than an actual part of us being human right and being natural uh, uh, parts of ourselves right and engaging with one another in this way yeah sex is fun and can be extremely pleasurable mm -hmm. and why we why we do everything in our power seemingly sometimes to make it icky and bad is is just really mind-boggling i don't know if it's fundamentally a religious thing or what or just that we're obsessed with keeping people in these binary boxes that uh we can better control mm -hmm. i don't know but um but I just think uh, we can do so much more to live in a more pleasurable world for everyone. Um, and so that's kind of the mission of my life and my career in some ways is to, is to imagine how, you know, what that world would look like. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that's part of why uh, I do specialize in working with queer and BIPOC folks myself, uh, because there are a lot of things that go into these conversations and a lot of intersectionality, uh, intersectionality aspects, right, of identity that uh, oftentimes don't get discussed. Uh, and so I did also read uh, in the description you sent that the book does highlight, I mean, folks from very different backgrounds, right, a lot of diversity, uh, which is which I, I think for me was like, wow, like this is great because like I mentioned, a lot of the, the uh, resources that I encountered during my program um, and, you know, even now as I've gone on uh, has not been very diverse. And so, you know, once again, even within these conversations, right, there's going to be very diverse aspects depending on who we're talking to, uh, cultural, uh, you know, gender identity presentation, sexuality, re, you know, whether it's religion, I mean, all of these different aspects right that make us so diverse uh which is what i think also makes it really hard to kind of set this within a binary system right which is what usually happens is it's either good or bad yes or no uh you were mentioning the uh you know people expecting this almost like a very excited like yes when it doesn't usually work that way at least not for all communities right and we talked about uh the nonverbals. we talked about like even bath houses right where it's almost uh uh consent in that way for many of us right i know i know similar for me going to some of these spaces was me giving consent in terms of you know wanting to experience something or connect with people and there were obviously uh ways to show when it, the, the consent wasn't given but it wasn't in the same space right uh, and uh, so i think that that's also another part of this is um how we want to universalize and apply these types of things to everyone, right? One size fits all. And so I think uh, that's why it's so important and wonderful that you are uh, including very diverse voices uh, within within this book. Yeah, we were really, uh, as I mentioned earlier, super intentional about trying to make sure that no one community or voice had an outsized sort of perspective here. Um, so we, we have gay men, we have trans women, we have lesbians, you know, black, 
Asian, white, Latino, Latina, you know, it's like, uh, we try to, to, to do our best in, you know, only 13 essays. So there's only so much you can do, but um, to try to make sure that we, that we, that we let all those voices shine through because the, the thing you learn in reading them all together is that like, oh, as you say, there is no universal conclusion. Uh, you know, people want mm -hmm. to, to write a nice, neat, tie a bow on it, like, okay, what is consent? And kind of the answer of the book is, well, it, who's asking? Like, what's this context? Because <laughs> um, it's, it's going to be different. Um, and yeah. there's not going to be something that's going to be one size fits all in your words. And, and I think that's so true that we just have to be really cognizant of resisting that impulse to universalize because inevitably mm -hmm. people are going to get left out and they're usually going to be the more marginalized folks who are getting left out. Absolutely. You, and, and I mean, even the, the conversation we had a bit earlier when you were mentioning the police, uh, historically, right, it has not been safe for many of us, especially queer folks of color, right, having to, to uh, deal with some of these things. The police have not been allies uh, and, and have not been uh, a safe resource. Uh, and so in many ways, the community has had to rely on itself, right, or within itself to try to resolve some of these things or even figure out solutions to some of these things. Um, and so I think that when we're talking about sex and especially within the queer community um it is going to to feel i think a, a bit um a bit complex uh, in terms of how we how we uh, have the, these conversations as well um with each other right because the queer community itself is very diverse and there's so many different communities within it uh you know and so i think that's also another part of why books like this are so important that we do have a dialogue we do understand uh that there are differences uh and and i love what you said about who's asking right like uh and and how do we also uh solve and keep each other safe uh, solve issues or keep each other safe when some of these things you know do happen right that when there is a, a, a when it's unsafe yeah and i think the one thing that comes out of the book is of course our communities can do better we're already doing a lot and certainly more than many heterosexual spaces in terms of trying to promote sexual ethics um but we could do more and so what can our communities do to not just respond to harm but also prevent it and i think that's really the big challenge for us is not just a community but as a society at whole you know ultimately if we want to end sexual violence we have to prevent it before it happens um mm. so i think that's one thing prevention uh our communities could do well to to think about you know not just responding to the harm but also the prevention side of things i think about it a lot just like you know what could a bathhouse do to try to uh make explicit some of the things that are not always clear to new people um mm -hmm. you know there are two chapters in the book that talk about bathhouses and one is from the perspective of a cis gay man and one is the perspective of a trans masculine non-binary um kind of person uh and it's really fascinating to read them side by side because you know a blue the the, the trans writer comes to it from a perspective of not sort of being aware of what the rules were before getting into that space and and feeling kind of mm -hmm. violated leaving feeling kind of violated and then alex the sort of cis gay man you know it's kind of grew up in that world and kind of knew the rules mm -hmm. or had figured them out over time through the various ways that we do um 
So, you know, I think Blue is trying to think of, like, what could this space do better to try to make us all aware of what these, you know, what these rules of engagement look like. Um, and I think that's a productive exercise that, that, you know, I don't think there's really a downside to that as long as you keep it, um, you know, open and honest and, and, and sexually direct. I think it can be productive to have those exercises. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and one of the lines I read uh, in the description was, you know, uh, queer folks did not invent sex, but they sure have done a lot towards the movement. And you just mentioned that a little bit, too, around uh, how queer folks have done a lot of that <laughs> yeah. work. Uh, why do you think sex is so important to us as queer folks? I mean, even even when, you know, I hear folks say like, oh, you know, I, I'm not like all the you know other gays or like I'm not going to I'm not that like, why are we so overtly sexual? And yet it, it's such an important part i mean even in that sense right when we're deciding whether we want to embrace our sexuality and our self-expression when it comes to sex or not uh but it, it is a, a highlight point right when it comes to our community and liberation and it has often been used i think as a way of of um self-expression but what are your thoughts around that you know how sex is kind of a, a focal point i think in our communities that's a great question. I mean, I think there's a couple different sides of it. I can't speak for everybody, right? I certainly won't make qualms to. Myself, growing up as a gay man in North Carolina in the 90s, you know, I had very few resources uh, of my own age. Um, and the internet was just sort of starting to be a thing, so I could connect with guys there a little bit, but certainly not my own age. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I don't know, just myself, speaking for myself, I think you realize that there's something different fundamentally about your desire and that desire gets pent up mm -hmm. like as a result, like, you know, especially when you're going through puberty, you're a horny little teenager. And uh, so sex <laughs> just has this sort of fundamental place in my life, I think in part because of that, because it was just this site of difference and unrequited fulfillment because I couldn't explore it uh, in the ways that my peers, my own age at high school were. So, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that might be one answer to your question. Uh, I mean, another mm -hmm. sort of lazy answer would be like for gay men, it happens that we're all men and testosterone is this very powerful mm -hmm. hormone. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think it is true that, you know, gay men and lesbians, and of course there are many other people in our communities, but just, as a, to use the lazy binary, like often have had tension, I think, because of that, because, you know, mm -hmm. we, we as men, you know, I think there's just something going on there with sex, whether it's social or whether it's hormonal, I won't get into the, you know, nitty gritty, but <laughs> men in our society are expected to be focused on sex more. And so you have couples where both are men. And I just think sex becomes more a primary emphasis and focus of relationships um but oh my god my sociologist colleagues would would kill me for saying all this i feel like i'm <laughs> i'm talking like a bio i'm not a biologist there's obviously social stuff too it's just uh i i understand that testosterone is is a powerful hormone <laughs> 
Yeah, no, what I'm hearing is there's definitely a lot of components, right, that go into it. And obviously, the same, you know, as, as a gay man, uh, for me, I, I definitely can see how sex uh, is our form of intimacy, right, a, a way to connect or feel connected to others. Uh, and I mean, this happens a lot, right? I've worked with plenty, plenty of gay men where their closest friends are people that they've had sexual relationships with at one point or another yeah. or experimented with or explored with uh, and created this safe space and then became very close emotionally uh and so i mean i, I obviously it's different for different people and it's going to uh also uh, uh you know not to generalize because that that's you're, you're absolutely right we can't speak for everyone uh yet it seems to be very common Right, that it is a way of socializing that's very different, I think, um, yeah. from, uh, uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know about very different from cishet, but it definitely is more acceptable or open. Yeah, my friend was just saying, he was like, he has a new fuck buddy, and he was like, oh, I need to have sex with him a bunch before we become friends. <laughs> because then we won't, the, the implication is right, then we will stop having sex and we'll just be friends. But that's true, I think, for a lot of gay men, and gay men is that, that, that a lot of their friends are other gay men that they, there's some sexual entanglement, whether it was actually explored or whether it was just desired or whatever. I think there's mm -hmm. something to that. And yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I can relate to that for sure in my friend group. There's definitely some of that uh, cross pollination. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I you know, I, I grew up in a very religious conservative home, so my parents' message about sex was just don't have it until you're married. But we're not going to tell you what it is or you know anything about it. And so a lot of it was really right. having to to rely on my own uh, instincts, right? Like you were mentioning, talking to people online, but mostly older men uh, or even uh, some who were around my age, but were also in the same phase of trying to figure out. What what exactly it was that they they liked i mean sex was never really something we talked about uh it was something that we just did right like you were mentioning maybe it was the horniness maybe it was this just physical need um but we never really talked about pleasure right and this is wasn't something that i learned about or even started to have conversations about until i went into sex therapy and uh really started to do this work uh you know moving away from just a mechanical version of sex of like the hookup but also talking about pleasure right uh, how do we enjoy uh this interaction uh that goes that can go deeper right than just the maybe a biological form of it right of the of the mechanical part where you know we're having a penetration or we're doing this uh because i have had partners uh who have been hookups where it wasn't directly penetration but instead it was cuddling right. it was uh talking yeah. and holding each other it was kissing it was other things uh, maybe it did lead to penetration later on right and that was always a conversation and i think uh, the reason why i'm bringing this up is because we're talking about consent and consent doesn't always usually just happen directly like you know w w maybe in a hookup but it can also be something that uh we get to right that we kind of establish over a connection uh meeting someone for drinks you know connecting with someone is it okay to do this right dialogue having an actual talk which uh, many of us we just we we don't 
do it, right? It's, it could be awkward. It can feel weird to be like, oh, like this is where what I enjoy or this is what I know about sex, right? And so we kind of just focus on the uh, mechanical. And, uh, you know, I've had uh, partners as well where uh, there's so much internalized shame around performance, around how they're supposed to have sex because their main source was porn. <laughs> that was kind of what they where they learned right. their way of having sex was porn. And, you know, porn it, it obviously produce uh, there's talent there it's not you know something that it just happens in the moment spontaneously you know it's 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 uh it's uh what is it uh, um uh, produced and so i think it, it, it's very different when it comes uh, yeah. to real life <laughs> produced stylized i mean it's you know i think there's always this debate about tops and bottoms and blah 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 mm-hmm. and, and I think bottoms obviously have a lot of work to do in, in preparation and, and, and there's a lot of stigma around receptive anal sex that makes it sort of psychologically, I think, intense for a lot of guys to kind of work through that, that what that means for them as men. Um, but then of course, tops, I mean, have this other burden, I'm mostly a bottom, so I don't know this world, but have this other burden of like performance and God, I know that that's really intense. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I I start, this is a little bit of a non sequitur, but it's related to what you were saying in my chapter, Lost in the Dark. I open with this memory uh, that was told to me by an older gay friend in the 1970s. He he went to go exploring with this guy. Uh, They had never had sex with a man before, but they had heard it had something to do with Vaseline. So they just covered each other in Vaseline and like rolled around to try to figure out what all the fuss was about. And I love that because it speaks to the fact that we are learning all the time yeah. in sex. Um, even even now with the experience I have in my life, I still find myself learning new things. And consent is one of those things that you learn along the way. And not just, and mm-hmm. it sounds so binary and contractual, but it's just more like, how do you read a person mm-hmm. to know kind of like what's hot, what's going well, what's not mm-hmm. going well? It takes practice. And honestly, honest to God, I think, you know, my chapter was originally called In Defense of Bad Sex. Um, mm-hmm. And that felt a little flippant to me. But but I think what that speaks to in my mind is that, you know, before you get to the good sex, a lot of times you have some bad sex. And it's not bad because it's not consensual. It's bad because you just didn't know what you want. You didn't know how to ask for it. You didn't know how to get it or give it, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um and it takes it takes some failure <laughs> to get to success, mm-hmm. um, and that's the tough part about talking about sex in an honest way is that, you know, sometimes it's not going to be great, and that's okay. Like that's part yes. of the. If there wasn't bad sex, there wouldn't be good sex. You know, like they both have to. Exist. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for saying that because I think that's such an important <laughs> uh, topic that we don't talk about, right? When sex isn't amazing and great and like porn level, right? Because a lot of times we don't we don't really automatically know what we enjoy and what's pleasurable to us, right? We just go based off what we see, like I said, learning from porn, learning from media, and we don't really sit with ourselves and ask, okay, well, what is pleasure to me? What does feel good? Um, How does this also play a role in how I develop sexually? And so the experiences that we often consider bad or negative, they do teach us, right? They do tell us about what we don't like, what, uh, you know, might might need to be changed the next time around, and how do we utilize that information 
information. You know, and I, I, my listeners know that I'm very transparent. I definitely love to talk and share about myself. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the learning curve is wild, right? Especially when we're kind of this young gay coming into the world and just really wanting to connect and, mm-hmm. you know, start going into the hookup world for the first time. Uh, you know, for me, I remember <laughs> once uh, meeting up with someone and I had never heard or even seen poppers in my life. I didn't know what they were and they had me this little vial and I'm about to drink it, right? Because I think, oh, it's, a, it's oh. like an energy thing. And they smack it out of my hand. It falls on the floor and the whole room fills up with fumes. I'm not only terrified, but I'm also high off the poppers. And then I'm like, you know, the, the person's like, do you still want to hook up? And I'm like, you know what? I think I'm good today. <laughs> and that's how I learned about poppers. And then the next time I was able to actually use them and enjoy them, you know, and so I think for me, it's, it's usually these kinds of stories that we don't share uh, because there's so much stigma and shame right around like, oh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't good at sex or or something happened or was awkward or I made a mess. When the reality is that these are all parts of us engaging in sex and pleasure. I didn't learn about prepping as a bottom for, I mean, a while, even after I started and I was like, oh my gosh, like these are the steps. No one talked to me about this. I didn't even know this was a thing until someone actually was there with me and and we had a conversation. They were like, oh, you know, this is what I do. And I was like, oh, I'm like, thank you. And as awkward as it felt now, you know, looking back, now I I remind myself, well, you wouldn't have known. Right. Because if someone hadn't actually sat there, you know, someone that that was kind enough, that was, you know, open enough to have this conversation like, hey, you know, this is kind of what I do or this is what you can use or here's some stuff. And then it was like, okay, great. Uh, You know, we don't all always have access to sexual education and especially not inclusive sexual education that includes uh, queer gay sex, uh, you know, practices. And so I I think that these are experiences and stories that are often, uh, you know, very helpful. And so for me, that's why I think it's so important to be open, uh, obviously, you know, in context, right, and having our boundaries and limits, but at least sharing when it comes to normalizing that these things do happen. We will have experiences that are not amazing. And it does not mean that sex won't be pleasurable. It does not mean that sex wasn't great. It does not mean that it wasn't consensual. Uh, if at first we didn't really know, you know, something we enjoyed, but we tried it or we hated it or it just, you know, the, the, we got lost in translation with our partner, right? Which is why, like I mentioned, it's so important to talk, right? To communicate. Um, and, and that's something that uh, often it can be a, a big challenge. You know, a lot of my clients, when I speak with them, uh, they kind of get a little thrown off with the whole idea of like, well, do you communicate with these people? Like, do you ever share like, well, this is my limit or boundary or this or that? They're, you know, they might be like, well, you know, on Grinder it's quick. They come over and then it's just kind of like I don't I, it was too late. And I'm like, OK, well, what are some things you can do to prep? What are some ways that you can uh, tell someone right what? what what you're into and not into and if that doesn't work then how do you find someone where maybe it 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 is okay uh right to explore in this way i i hooked up with a younger guy in his 20s not too long ago and usually there's kind of like a reverse mentorship thing where like i'm teaching them something but he taught me something which was at the beginning (laughs) of the encounter he leaned in and whispered in my ear red is the safe word and then just proceeded and i was like what the fuck? I was like, how are you this advanced <laughs> to like know that you should set that up at the beginning? I was really impressed. Uh, and and uh, so I learned something, you know, uh, a, a little bit older than he was. And uh, I think that's just speaks to the, the creativity of play 
that can happen when you when you allow yourself mm-hmm. to be open and to communicate in whatever way that looks like. I mean, I love the internet for the ability to just lay it out there in a clear way. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what I'm into. So usually when a guy comes over that I meet online, like, we kind of know, like, the basis, the, the, the basic facts. Uh, there's still yeah. some stuff to explore, of course. Yeah. Some boundaries can be sort of played mm-hmm. with. But... Um, Mm-hmm. But we kind of mm-hmm. have the basic form. And boundaries can change right over time. Exactly. Boundaries can change over time. I mean, it, depending on the relationship as well. And thank you so much for sharing that story. I love it. I, you know, I think it is true. You can teach an old dog new tricks because I definitely <laughs> have had younger partners dog. who have kind of. <laughs> hey, you know what? I, I honestly, like, I, as you were sharing that story, I was just thinking about how wild a lot of younger folks are now, especially when it comes to sex and having these conversations because they are a lot more open. I think uh, that we, it, when we talk about younger generations, especially within the queer community, it, it is different, right? We're no longer in the 70s, 80s, you know, even early 90s where we had to hide or or even like you mentioned, right, still having some of these laws that maybe we're not uh, uh, acted on, but they were still like, you know, present and, and visible or even the narrative right around sex. Uh, but it has shifted. And, and I definitely love to see uh, when young folks are so much more empowered and a lot more vocal and a lot more uh, creative uh, in these ways. And so I, I love that. I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, there, there's definitely still a lot to learn, even for, for those of us who uh, have had a, a pretty good run sexually so far. Exactly. I mean, that's the great thing, right? Otherwise, it'd get boring. So you'd always get to mix it up and to be like, oh, this is a new thing. I didn't know I was into this. It's it's really an awesome feeling when it happens. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it, it's a lot of teachable moments. Uh, and, you know, I, I want to say thank you again, Trevor, for just you being so open uh, and sharing your knowledge, but also talking about this very important book. Uh, for those folks who are listening, you can get the book. It's out now, right? You mentioned it, the book is out in the world, right? Okay. It's out. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Unsafe so people, words. Yeah. So, what are some where are some places that people can find it uh, that you recommend, and also uh, any resources, links, websites, anything, uh, social media, anything you want to share with folks so they can learn more or get the book? Absolutely. So there are a couple ways to buy the book. Obviously, you could buy it at your local bookstore if they have it. If you live in a city like New York City, like some of their like kind of lefty bookstores would have it. <laughs> Otherwise, of course, you can get it at like uh, Amazon. Um, or directly through Rutgers University Press. And um, if you use the code, and, and you can put this in the chat, but uh, or the description rather, RF, as in Frank, LR19, uh, you'll get 30% off in free shipping. Um, and so it, it comes out to like 13, 14 bucks right. in the United States. So it's very affordable. Uh, it's got these great photo essays in it. So, you know, you get some sexy uh, photos from a kink S&M mm-hmm. photographer. So there's something in it, I think, for everyone. Uh, so you can get it there. You can also find us on Twitter at Unsafe Words Book. Um, and just if you Google Trevor Hoppy, H-O-P-P, you can find me lots of different places on, on the Internet. Great, great. So for everyone out there who uh, just heard, I will be adding this in the description so you can uh, get the book or even uh, find out more about Trevor's work. Um, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode. And uh, until next time.